Welcome to the SparkCom podcast. I'm Manny Charan. I'm Adam Hartung. And we're the Spark Partners. Our show, we talk about innovation, trends, and how to change your mindset to think like an innovator. How's it going today, Adam? It's going good. And I have a question for you, Manny. When was the last time you ate a bologna sandwich? Bologna sandwich. Good Lord. Uh, I would say over five years, maybe 10 years. Wow, that's a lot earlier than me. I know I haven't had one for probably 30 years. Do you remember if your bologna had a name? Of course it did. What was it? Oscar Mayer. Oh, of course, right? So we all know Oscar Mayer. And did you have a piece of cheese on it? Probably so. And who who made the cheese, you suppose? Uh, Let me think about that. Probably Kraft. Kraft. See, these are the names. These are the consumer products names that we've all come to know and, and love. And today's show, we're going to take some time to talk about what happens when you start to rest on your laurels and you forget about the customer and spend way too much time thinking that you know what's going on in the world and you have all the answers. Today, we're going to talk about a story that gets at the notion of if you don't know where you're going, any road will lead you there. We've all heard that from Lewis Carroll, Alice in Wonderland, right? But how often do we think it applies to us? We've got some companies here to talk about today that applied to in a really, really, really big way. So, Kraft. Kraft, America spells cheese. K-R-A-F-T. Right. We learned all that watching television, didn't we? Founded in 1923 by a guy named Thomas McKinney. He wanted to try to consolidate the dairy industry. Now, think about this. This is the birth of the industrial era. I mean, we're really coming of age into it, I should say, birth in the 1890s. But people are really starting to think about productivity. And so he, he goes to New York and he raises money and he, his whole idea is to consolidate the ice cream business. That's really what he wants to do. He keeps buying up ice cream companies until by 1930, his company is the largest ice cream company in the world. In fact, it's the largest dairy company in the world. Second largest is Borden. So then we see this grand era from 1930 that runs well up into the 1970s where we, we see the, the people of the world start to tune into radio, then start to tune into television. We see the birth of the giant grocery stores. And this all creates what we come to know as the consumer goods industry, right? Yep. Brands, brands advertised on radio, brands advertised on television. And certainly Oscar Mayer and Kraft are a couple of the biggest, well, best known brands overall. And then there's sub brands like Philadelphia cream cheese and are known and, and Breyers ice cream seal test are known as well. Now, This is all pretty good, it's fine. And then around 1980, Kraft goes about buying up Duracell batteries, Tupperware, and West Bend appliances. Now, why do you suppose they did that, Manny? Well, the thinking of the day was to, quote unquote, diversify their portfolio, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, we've got a lot of money. Ice cream's a pretty profitable business. And so we're gonna go buy up some other businesses. Now, when I say those three names, Duracell, okay, that got sold to um, Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway, but Tupperware and West Bend, those are a couple of names you haven't heard for a while, I guess, right? Well, maybe Tupperware, but not, definitely not West Bend. So you say to yourself, what do you suppose their selection criteria was when they bought these companies? It was likely that they were for sale. Yeah. They're for sale, and somebody sat down with a real paper spreadsheet and a pencil and ran a whole bunch of numbers trying to figure out, oh, okay, could we buy this thing? And if we advertised it a lot, would we sell more stuff, right? Right. Now, what they didn't do was ask customers if they wanted more of that stuff, did they? Right. 
Right. So there we got this company, 1980, world largest dairy company. It's making these acquisitions that in hindsight, we can look at it and say, well, does that make any sense? In 1985, Philip Morris, you know, Philip Morris company, a cigarette company. Absolutely. Became Altria, got renamed Altria. So they bought General Foods and General Foods owned Oscar Mayer. Okay. And then in 1988, Philip Morris bought Kraft. And they put Kraft and General Foods together as a company. Now, why do you suppose Philip Morris bought um, General Foods and Kraft? Well, it could be because of uh, all of the cigarette issues, and they could see a, a cliff in the future when, uh, when perhaps uh, cigarettes would be either heavily taxed or banned, or yeah. a general trend in the decrease of use of, of tobacco products. By the 1980s, it's, you know, now the cat's out of the bag. Everybody knows you're going to get cancer if you smoke cigarettes. It's bad for your health. It's a, there's nothing good about the cigarette itself. Business is going to decline. So now they, have, they decide, well, we're making a lot of money selling cigarettes, like the obvious sin product. It's a very, very profitable product. And we, like Kraft had been, have this money to spend. What do you suppose their selection criteria was for going around and making an acquisition that they would pick General Foods and Kraft? Probably the same thing. They were for sale. They uh, diversified their, their portfolio and um, likely was uh, just kind of made sense on the, on the uh, spreadsheet. What we see here again, another internal focus, right? We're in the cigarette business. We know how to distribute cigarettes. We've been big in advertising. Remember the Marlboro Man? Yeah. Way back in the day. So they were very, they'd done a lot of advertising, spent a lot of money, had a lot of skill around advertising. They said, here, other consumer goods companies. So we're going to buy somebody like us. When they say like us, they mean like their value delivery system. Somebody else who makes a product, it's, consume, it's a consumer good, it's sold in the grocery store, it's sold in a lot of different locations like uh, quick shops, et cetera. All they're looking at are the operational elements, distribution, you know, put stuff on a truck, go into the same place, manufacturing plants roughly located in the same locations. They're looking at everything except the customer. You start seeing yourself, okay, what was the value proposition that Kraft had? What was the value proposition General Foods had? What was the value proposition that Philip Morris had? They had, they had no clue, right? They have no clue what the value proposition is at all. Instead, they're looking completely internally at their own business, trying to figure out kind of how it's going to operate. So um, this goes along until about uh, 2001, okay, now. So that was 88, and in 2001, Philip Morris in 2000, they bought Nestle. Then 2001, they say, you know what? We're really not getting much out of this. You know, like we bought all this stuff. We slammed it all together. So we've got, you know, Nestle and Oscar Mayer and Jell-O. And we've got Kraft and Cracker Barrel and Seal Test. All of it's just a mumbo jumbo list of a bunch of products that are being sold. But they're not making any money with it, really. So they listed on the stock exchange in 2001. And uh, what's interesting about this was at the time, I got really fascinated with it. And so I started doing a lot of research on craft around that period. And we, we advance up to 2005. Okay. So in 2005, they published, uh, they listed craft on the stock exchange. Philip Morris is slowly selling its shares. By 2007, it completely sells all of its shares. But we get this release and we get an annual report. We got all this information on craft. So we look at the annual report in 2005 and they say, yeah, since we've been, 2001, collecting data on this as an independent company, effectively revenues have not grown at all. Yep. 
And so you say, well, okay, what were your revenues from new products in 2004? So just guess percentage of revenues in 2004 that came from new products. This is Kraft, General Foods, you know, all those, uh, you know, Nabisco, all those things, new products accounted for what percentage of revenues? I would say uh, 5%. Oh, well, you're optimistic. It was three, 3%. 3%. So you have this multi-billion dollar company. At the time, the revenues were over $30 billion, which was big by today's standards. It was huge by those standards. Yeah. And they could not have any new products. In fact, the last new product they had launched was DiGiorno. Do you the remember pizza. that? Yeah, yeah, the DiGiorno Pizza Line, 1995. That was the last wow. product that had been launched by all of those companies combined. In fact, it's still the last new product launched by all of those companies combined. That's a little crazy. <laughs> yeah, so I have some information I want to pull over here to make sure I get it right. Of what they said in their 2005 annual report about 2004. Um, they said that they were uh, absolutely certain in their by the numbers management style that they were spending all their money on existing brands because it would be wasteful to try to spend it anywhere else. That the growth rate was okay, okay, even though it was less than 3%. Their, here are their plans for how to be successful in the future. Better packaging, and by that they meant they were going to introduce resealable packages and new packages for the uh, super centers, meaning really big packages of product, right? Okay. So we're going to manage price gaps. You know what that means, Manny? Manage uh, it's, it has to do with the operational efficiency of their manufacturing. Yeah. So they say, okay, over here we got an eight slice pack of American cheese and it's a buck. And then we have a 32 slice pack of American cheese is three bucks. Let's introduce a 16 pack slice pack of cheese for two bucks because we have a gap between one and three. It's literally taking the same product and repackaging it in order to try to cover a bunch more price points with the same product. And then the last one was that they were going to um, be sure to focus on restructuring and lowering costs. Those were the three primary plans for 2005. Their goal was to increase their global share in existing businesses and make strategic divestitures so they could decomplex, that's their word, not mine, decomplex through SKU rationalization. You know what SKU rationalization means? Getting rid of more SKUs. Exactly. More products. So here you have a company. Now, let's go through this. What, what I've just gone through is history of this company over the course of about 80 years, right? 1925, they set out to be the largest ice cream company. They accomplished that. They become the largest dairy company. Because they're collecting all those products up, they get huge, not only ice cream, but cheese. In the dairy business, you collect eggs. So because they're collecting eggs, they end up in the mayonnaise business. That's where Miracle Whip and all that comes from, right? Salad dressings is because they were collecting eggs. So they get built. All this is building a business until they get to 1980. Then in 1980, they're sort of like, what are we going to do next? And they didn't ever go ask the customer what they should do next, right? They didn't say, well, what's our value proposition? What do we know? How could we do something great, something new? Could, could we you know, pioneer or innovate in the field of dairy? Now, this is not that it wasn't possible. Have you ever bought dairy products in Canada or in Europe and noticed something distinctive about it? Um, yeah, there seems to be more higher quality, better selection, 
Um, and uh, I guess more little cottage brands. I, I don't remember seeing some big brands out the there. Packaging? The packaging, yeah, it's pretty nice packaging. They use aseptic packaging. Remember, it's little boxes like we get high C drink in. They yeah. put the milk in that so it's shelf stable. Doesn't have to yeah. be refrigerated, right? So this was one of the big innovations that was happening in the 1970s and 1980s in the dairy business was you change the processing where you know, literally from the cow to the package, such that you keep it at a certain temperature, you can package it with no air and it's called an aseptic packaging, and you can keep a shelf-stable product. You put milk on the shelf and leave it there for six months. And it could come, and they were selling it primarily in half pint, pint, and um, quart, American designations. They would have been doing it in, in liter and then half liter, quarter liter um, packaging. Whereas we're trying to just pump gallons of milk out the door, right? And large pounds of cheese, and these kinds of things. And, and in Europe, we're seeing the uh, distribution of um, more kinds of cheese. You know, Americans had largely had few selections. We weren't a cheese exotic country by any stretch of the imagination, like right. say the French were, but that was starting to spread. It was definitely spreading across Europe. It was spreading across most of the world. But you don't see crafts sit down and say, wait a minute, how would we help with that trend? People with taste. So trying to improve the product, improve the yeah. packaging so we could be better. You don't see any of that. Instead, you see, oh, let's go buy Tupperware, right? Yeah, and it's remarkable that they had that much clout and uh, that much cash. And they really had the attention of the consumer from their point of view. Yeah. Not from the consumer point of view. Now, all of this is happening... But the one group that's not making any money are the investors. This is doing nothing for the investors at Kraft or at General Foods or at Philip Morris. Or we relaunch Kraft again as a company and it's Kraft General Foods. No, none of the investors are winning at this. None of the employees are winning at this, right? Employees aren't getting big bonuses. This isn't a great, wonderful place to work on the way up. Revenues are growing 10%. We're all going to get, you know, do really, really well. We're going to get more off management. No, it's a culture that's just flat. Completely flat, little growth, no growth in the company, not even keeping up with inflation, right? Remember inflation of the 70s and the early 80s? Not keeping up with inflation by any stretch of the imagination. Um, and, and, and suppliers are seeing their products, you know, the value of their products go down. Not that the price of milk's going up. In fact, the opposite, in, in real dollars, because of inflation, price of milk is falling dramatically. Yeah. So nobody's winning here except a handful of senior people at the top of the organization who are giving themselves budgets for financial machinations. You know, we're bolting this together and unbolting it, bolting this thing together, unbolting it. And each time we turn the bolts, the guys at the top say, give me a $10 million bonus, right? Because they did wonderful yeah. stuff. And they go hire an investment banker and they say, we'll give him a $10 million bonus for helping us put the bolt to, to screw it together. And then four years later, we unscrew it. Somebody else gets another bonus. But the constituencies, the people you care about, the workers, employees, the people in the communities, the grocers that are selling the product, they're getting nothing out of any of this behavior. So the answer becomes, <laughs> Irene Rosenfeld uh, becomes the CEO and she says, oh, I'm going to go for global growth. I'm going to buy Cadbury. Now, I'm not going to ask you why she bought Cadbury because the reason was so bizarre. It was because Cadbury was the number one chocolate in Brazil and it was growing at 16%. And her reasoning was if she bought Cadbury, she could somehow find a way to take the other products in Kraft General Foods and push them into Brazil and South America. Now, she didn't ask anybody in Brazil if they were needing Velveeta or Kraft macaroni and cheese in a box. None of these questions were asked. Instead, it was, oh, look, we've got all these products. 
here's this candy company out of England, right? Yeah. Selling chocolates. And because they've got a, a distribution in Brazil and South America, this will open the doors for us to be wildly successful. So she buys Cadbury, which leads to the decision in 2011 to split the company in half because this works so badly. It achieves absolutely nothing. Why? Because we're still not talking to the customers, right? We have no value proposition. Everything you're reading is how we're going to be more synergistic, cut costs, you know, all these kinds of things are what's going to happen. So they split the company in two in 2012. Now you've got Mondelez. It's no longer Kraft. Let me give us his name, Mondelez, right? Why? Well, because of the whole Brazilian bullshit thing, right? That was going on, but it's going nowhere. So but just take a guess what's happened to the revenue of Mondelez between 2012 and 2020. I would say it's pretty flat. Dropped from $35 billion to $26 billion. Wow, that's a big yeah. drop. So that's the snack food business that Ms. Rosenfeld created, but gave herself a nice $100 million bonus for creating it, and then gave herself a nice $150 million bonus when she walks out the door after she does the split and decides, then the board tells the board to have somebody else run the company. So she gets some money, but everybody else is just watching this thing deteriorate. Mondelez is going nowhere. The SP 500. Uh, goes up and uh, Mondelez lift, literally performs at 50%. So if you'd put a dollar in the S&P 500 or the Dow, you'd have $2. If you put the dollar into Mondelez, you would have a uh, dollar and a half. Okay. That's how well they perform. Let's take the other side. That's the split off of now what's called Kraft Foods again. Okay. So Kraft Foods, they're going out of the market in 2012. Somebody says, hey, you're not big enough and has the brilliant idea to smash them together with Heinz. <laughs> why right why what do you when i say heinz what do you think of manny ketchup of course ketchup what was the last big innovation you saw in ketchup the upside down squeeze bottle yeah right do you remember green ketchup uh barely yeah yeah like 1991 92 yeah, yeah. somebody had the bright idea if we put green food coloring in it yeah it didn't work so well who wants to eat green ketchup right no, so so you got two companies now but three, Mondelez, Kraft Foods, and Heinz, which have no innovation, no 10 cents of the market. They're not following any trends whatsoever. They're just looking at their operations and saying, how do we grow these operations? How do we put more product through what we have? How do we try to maximize what we do in our value delivery system? So what happens to, now we've smashed up Kraft Heinz in 2015. What happens to Kraft Heinz? What do you suppose happened to the revenue of Kraft Heinz between 2015 and 2020? Well, my gut tells me it's flat, but it likely it probably went down. It was flat because we're talking about Velveeta, Philadelphia cream cheese, Heinz ketchup. So pretty much the marketplace didn't go anywhere for five years, right? But here's the bad part. The stock market goes up about 50%. 60%, the value of Kraft Heinz drops 60%. So if you'd have bought a dollar's worth, it was worth 40 cents in the end of 2019. So they're getting crushed. So what's the, the brilliant answer now, Manny? Have you heard what they're gonna do next? Sell it off. Break right, it off. right. So they made the announcement recently that they're gonna take the, the cheese business, the Kraft cheese business is going to get sold to a French cheese company for district, so they can increase their distribution in the United States. A footnote to that was they're getting $3 billion for the U.S. business because they sold the Canadian business last year. 
and far less fanfare for a billion two they'd already sold the craft cheese business in Canada off. Yeah. So now we will have left a craft foods business and the only cheese they have is Velveeta. That's remarkable. <laughs> a hundred years. Yeah, for a hundred years they're top of their game. Well, not even that much, but for at least sixty years they're top of their game yeah. or, or fifty. And then they lost sight of the, the customer uh, and the needs of the customer. I mean, it's kind of remarkable, a hundred year old company and, and the billions and billions of dollars of revenue. But what they did was they never got their eyes on the prize. They never said, hey, look, here's our key value. Now they had it originally, the key value proposition. I cut myself off, key value proposition, what they needed. When Thomas McInerney was starting the company, he wanted to make a very productive ice cream company so he could distribute ice cream across the United States, a high quality product, and he did. You know, he had Seal Test, he had Briars, and a lot of other brands that went across the country. He made great ice cream. In the process, they made some good cheese, too. You know, at a time when America didn't have the, the consistent cheese across the country, Kraft came in and you could get consistent cheese. Now, it wasn't a high variety, uh, but it was a consistent, you know, um, uh, cheddar-style cheeses that you could get under their branding. And it grew the business because they knew their value proposition. And in fact, a lot of people don't realize the, the origination of Velveeta had a very, very practical purpose. American cooks didn't know how to make sauces, didn't know how to make cheese sauces. Most of them were immigrants. They'd perhaps seen cheese sauces made by their parents or grandparents, but they didn't learn how to cook and make a cheese sauce. And so they would, if you've ever tried to make a cheese sauce from scratch, it is challenging. So Kraft innovated Velveeta, which is, yeah. you know, put it in a pan, turn on the heat, and you get runny cheese. You get a cheese sauce, right? Yeah, right. It may not be the best, but it filled the need. It was a great innovation that helped them sell their product. It met a, right. a customer need. That's what we saw the company do all the way up until 1980. So let, let's, uh, let's talk about how the, um, what they should have done, right? Let's take a crystal ball, rewind, we'll say 20 years. Right. And you know, looking at the, the change in, in the customer's taste, uh, the growing uh, trends of health, health foods, what should they have done in, the, we'll say 20 years ago? So the, the obvious thing here is that they, let's say that you, you forgive them the mistakes of the 1980s. We'll say, okay, you know, the, the, the launch of the MBAs, it's the launch of the strategy consulting firms. Everybody's talking about how to grow your share and, you know, advanced productivity and that sort of stuff. So we, we let them get away with all the productivity they thought they would get by combining ad agencies and combining distribution centers and all that of the 1980s. But when that doesn't add value, right? At that point, you have to say, wait a minute, let's quit looking inside and let's look outside, right? They yeah. should have, by 2004, 2005, they should have said, look, we're a standalone company. We're on our own. Let's go out there and let's develop the markets that people want, you know? So let's create. Just because it says craft on the door doesn't mean we can't create healthy foods, right? It didn't have to be even cheese. It doesn't even have to be dairy, right? It could be anything. So we could have gone after any number of healthy foods, or but we didn't even necessarily have to stay in the foods market. We could have said, what is it that consumer goods that people are looking for that would help them? So what do we see emerging? We see the growth of, uh, of uh, uh, sports drinks, right? Yeah. Energy drinks. These are all things coming down the pike. They're not inherently something that need to go to a Pepsi or a Coca-Cola, right? This, the, that soft drink business, right. we, we already had uh, Snapple. Snapple was not yeah. invented by the soft drink company. Snapple was its own brand that came out of New York, right? And it had been developed and it ended up with Quaker Oats. So there was, there was 
alternative products. People were looking for alternatives to what they bought. They're looking for things, sometimes with a little bit of a health to it. But I wouldn't necessarily say Snapple was a healthier drink. It was just an alternative drink. Instead yeah. of drinking a Coke or a Pepsi, I could have an iced tea. And like I said, we had the emergence had come up with the sports drinks for sure, right? With right. Gatorade, where that was headed. So here were there were other categories they could have looked at in food, but it was it was farther afield. And they, what they should have said is, where are the customers and where are the customers going? You know, yeah. are sports drinks going to be consumed by yeah. football players on the field, or are people going to drink it at home when they got to go outside and mow the grass? Right. So they, they seemingly missed the boat. It'll be curious to see what happens just to the aftermath here as we wind down today's show um, and just really see what happens with these. I mean, they've already made lots of bad decisions and uh, they're pretty much no longer who they once were. Um, so we'll see what happens. I think one of the things to keep in mind here is that it was possible to predict this. If you go back and look at some papers that I wrote and published back in 2000 and 2005, you'll see that I was very clear at saying that I didn't think Kraft would pull themselves out. A lot to do with the fact they didn't have any new products, the whole DiGiorno thing being the one yep. product out there. That So what we can learn from this is we can learn how to predict how our competitors will behave recognize the ones that are locked in and not doing good things. And as entrepreneurs say, we don't have to worry about them coming into our market. Exactly. If you wanted to launch off a high-end cheese brand, there was no way they were going to stop you, right? If you wanted right. to launch in a competitive product against what though Kraft General Foods, Nabisco was trying to get to market, it was there for you. Exactly. Well, thank you so much, Adam, for your time today. And thank you for our listeners that were uh, part of the show. Uh, please tune us in and uh, uh, go to our website, sparkpartners.com and um, looking forward to next time we talk. Thanks, Manny. Have a good one. You too. Take care, Adam.